Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. Hova, Hova, Hovi, Hovi. Ramona Hovi is on with us today, ladies and gentlemen. It's the Tripping Over the Barrel episode where we're going to talk about all kinds of fun things. We're talking about Austin. We're talking about drilling info in the early days. We're talking about breweries. We're talking about all different kinds of things, being a woman and in, in an engineer in, in oil and gas and in tech. Tim, would you like to introduce Ramona? Sure. Yeah. So I'm really excited to have Ramona on the, on the podcast today. I guess it's kind of odd, but we should have met a long, long time ago, but I don't think we met actually until 2009. I was an energy navigator. You were drilling info, but we were in school together. We were two years separated in school, and you would think that was enough that we would know each other in a small petroleum engineering department. But I, as far as I know, I don't think we ever met in school. Were you there when we moved? Two years make us a big difference. It's weird. It is. It's crazy. I'm in my intro classes, and she all she's trying to do is you know pull the ripcord and get out of there. I think you had pretty much all your engineering classes in the the old petroleum engineering building at AM, right? That's correct. We moved into the Richardson building my last year, my fifth year. Yeah. So I went over that weekend and helped carry little crates over to the new building as a you know, a young sophomore just, you know, hell just trying to figure out what was going on. So anyway, Ramona, give us a little bit of background on your path into the industry and, and what you've been doing over the years. Sure. So I'm a, a child of the oil field. My grandfather was a pumper down in South Texas. Uh, my dad was a petroleum engineer. We moved around a lot as a kid. I went to A&M, like we said, graduated petroleum engineering in 1990. And then I started my career as a drilling engineer with ARCO. I was based out of Houston, mostly Gulf of Mexico and some South Texas. Did that for about three years, alternating between being a company man, running uh, the rigs offshore or down in South Texas, or then being in the office. Then we hit another little bump in the wonderful world of the oil and gas world. And I moved into the gas trading side for about ah. six years, I think. I need three to nine, five years. So I was up in Dallas and then back to Houston as we went through getting vast our resources. And then we got merged with Southern Company, became Merit. And that's about the point where I left. Did some other kind of white geeky database stuff. My husband and I and our kids moved to Austin in 2000. And then in 02, I joined Drilling Info uh, when we were still in the very early startup stages. You know, drawing decline curves on uh, on a piece of paper out yeah. by hand. Yep. And we were trying to, we were moving that to online, finding permits online instead of having to actually go down the railroad commission and look them up. So the first employee, they were starting to get going, but uh, got to see that grow and be involved with a lot of different aspects at DI. And then finally, uh, through different changes and, and what have you, I left in 2015. Did play around in some startup software development, kind of in the solar side, which did not work. But then finally, in 2017, I joined uh, Longquist & Company. We're an oil and gas uh, engineering consulting firm based here in Austin, Texas. Well, I just need to to chime in and say you have the best accent of anybody who's been on the show to this point. So <laughs> that that part I, I really enjoy. Um, surprised me a little bit as you got going, but 2002, a woman engineer in the oil and gas industry. Okay, there's already a lot of oxymorons here. 
<laughs> and then we have Austin, Texas and Drilling Info. What was your role? Were you somebody that came in to like do demonstrations or were you like working with clients? What, what did you do? Well, they first hired me. I mean, when you're in a startup, you're, you're in lots of different roles. But they first hired me as their first inside salesperson to make cold calls using permits. I am the worst salesperson probably ever. <laughs> um, but they gave you a lot of training, did they? Oh, none whatsoever. No, just here, start calling people. Get them a free subscription to one month for drilling info. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I was definitely out of my league there, but I, I was able to query our database to find leads, you know, who's been active, stuff like that. And, you know, I was an oil and gas person that's querying the database and actually figuring out what it meant. So I got involved in a lot of the, as we bring in new data sets, for example, Oklahoma production data. And that led into, we started doing some custom reports for clients, which started our analytics team. And we grew that. I was head of products and services, which meant I had no clue what I was doing. I had <laughs> too much under me. And, but we made it through. We added new functions, new parts of our system, new data sets, and then doing the analytics. And that's when I got to know Tim because we were big Spotfire users ah. using the data analytics on our own data. So yeah. yeah, that's where I got going. That was a fun time. Well, I guess I want to rewind it a little bit further. I mean, the industry is not well known for having a large women, you know, workforce and and I know from personal experience in the early 90s and, you know, in late 80s, it was much worse than it is now. So, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of, uh, you know, the woman's perspective, uh, you know, where there's a 28 year old, you know, now, you know, going out into the field and kind of giving a perspective of being in a male dominated field now. Yeah. What was it like in the 1990 to go out onto a rig or maybe even in your internships? What What is that like to go as a drilling engineer into the teeth of the where everybody's a guy. What is that like? It's funny. I loved every minute of it. I think because I was not the first female out there. So yeah. it was still an oddity, but it wasn't, you know, they had seen a female on the way before. I think sometimes I was just too dumb to know better too. <laughs> uh, you just, you get out there, you do your job, you're a geeky engineer. You know, that's all you're kind of thinking. I was fortunate enough. I did have great internships. I worked for a mud logger after my freshman year, worked out uh, one of Marathon's gas plants. Uh, let me, hold on. Let me let me just stop it because Jeremy likes to ask this question. What the hell's a mud logger? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was thinking it. Yeah. So the mud logger is the person who's on the rig catching samples as they're drilling of the cuttings, the rock. Yeah. And they're also checking for gas. They're trying to see where they are in the formation as they're drilling, but it's not a glorious job. By any stretch of me, imagine. No, it's, it's not. And nor does it, did I hear the words mud or logging um, in what you just described? Well, because the cuttings come up in the mud. Ah, okay. All right. They're writing down every single foot along the way as it comes up, what they're seeing. What Cuttings catcher. Yeah. So when you were out there as kind of the, I don't know, I'll call it a token woman, not really token, but you're the only woman on site for some given time. Did anybody give you any trouble, give you a hard time? Were they afraid to talk to you? I mean, was there, what was, what was that? I was, I really did not get much grief. I think part of it, especially by, you know, late 90s or late 80s, early 90s, price of oil was so low 
people were terrified of losing their jobs. And I don't think they were going to give me much grief because they didn't want to risk it. I also, my family, my mom's family is North Louisiana. My dad's is from South Texas. I was born in South Louisiana, even though we moved around a lot after that. But invariably, especially out on the drilling rigs, those crews would be from one of those three areas. And I would find that connection as soon as I could. If that crew was from Sabine Parish, I had an in. If they were from South Louisiana, I had an in. And I think as much as anything, they wanted to find that connection. Because, yeah, I was female. I was young. I looked like I was 12. (laughs) Safety glasses offshore. Big, thick Coke bottles because you're not allowed to wear contacts. They don't make women. They did not make women's size steel-toed boots back then. So I had to wear the smallest (laughs) boots they made. So, yeah, I look like I'm 12. And I'm an engineer. And so I had a lot against me. But if I could find that connection, we got along fine. At, at, when you were at Arco, did they require you to wear uh, coveralls out on at the rig or on offshore? I was trying to think about that. I I remember wearing coveralls, but I also remember wearing jeans and a work short shirt. So I know I did not have Arco coveralls, but no, I, you know, gosh, that's so long ago. I do remember the work shirts, but it was mostly jeans. Did the guys out in the field, did they try to clean up the language while they were around you or how did that go? Hell no. No? (laughs) (laughs) I learned to cuss with the best of them. And that was part of it. You know, they wanted to see if I'd freak out and embarrass. And as long as I could cuss right along with them, you know, that was just part of it. One of my favorite stories, uh, I was still kind of training and we took a kick, which means, well, it's not a good thing. Turn back up and we evacuated all the non-essentials off and they brought in a guy from another rig who's kind of in between jobs and he was just a blustery he's one of everybody you know it wasn't just female he's just going to be blustery with everybody and we were talking right over the, the whole discussing options and he's just physically shoving me out of the conversation elbow everything and I finally just looked at him. I said, you really are as big an asshole as everyone says you are. <laughs> oh, he starts laughing. Everybody else laughs. And after that. Ice is broken. Yeah. Ice is broken. I, I stood my ground and I didn't make a big thing of it. Just went forward. So, That's funny. Um, but yeah, it, was, it was crazy. I mean, I, I'd be out there for, especially on the production platforms or on workover rigs. They didn't have separate quarters. Oh, so wow. Me and three to six guys in a trailer sleeping in bunks. So that was always interesting for those guys. I'm sure it was pain. You know, they, they had to clean up definitely at that point. Um, <laughs> Man, that's yeah. something. That's crazy. Now, you told me in preparation for this, Ramona, you told me of a story when you w- got to the gas trading floor that just baffled me about, you know, how the language and everything changed on the trading floor, a place where you think it's everyone's buttoned up and coat and tie. Yeah. Can you go through that with me? Yeah, it was. So, you know, I've come out of the drilling world and yes, there were a lot of, there were other women and we cussed like sailors, like I said, and then I moved into the world of gas trading and it, it threw me for all kinds of loops, Um, just a whole different work environment. But yeah, it was the wild west and it was so fast. It's so intense and you're screaming, you know, I need buying gas in one area and we're transporting it to another. So I'm trying to find the best prices. And we cuss, con- I mean, so much worse than I ever did on a drilling rig. 
I would say it was dull. And mm. it, it was partly stress relief, partly just because we were obnoxious, I think. But <laughs> one of the best, Arco, Atlantic Richfield, all you know, proper, great company, finally decided to that that was not appropriate. So they made us take a half hour training class on why it was not appropriate to cuss at work. It's like a scene out of the office or something. It was, it was like, we just looked at them, looked at each other and went, oh, how effective was that training? Did it stop? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that did not take with us at all. <laughs> So tell me, I'm going to shift a little bit to the the drilling info days. And certainly I remember you guys had, at least in the, the early-ish days of, of my time in the industry, 2008, 9, 10, a younger kind of energetic crew, definitely a lot of females. I'm curious what it was like culturally working at a startup versus working in the oil field. You know, it was definitely a, uh, in some ways a change because, you know, it is, it's tech and it's a startup, but especially, you know, the 02, 03, 04 time period, we were mostly oil and gas people. Yeah. Uh, all the founders were oil and gas. So for me, it was getting to come back to the people that I had gotten to know in the, in my early part of my career. So we, everything we were building were for oil and gas people. That was our slogan back then for mm. oil and gas, by oil and gas. And we lived into that. And I think that's why we really connected when we'd be out on the road doing trainings, trade shows, all that, that it was just a bunch of oil and gas folks who happened so, to be in technology. So there's a mix there at Drilling Info of tech and oil and gas. And, it, and of course, this is coming on the hind end of the tech bubble of uh, 2000. So did did it did Drilling Info kind of behave like the kind of tech companies, big fun, real relaxed kind of thing? Or was it more more intensity? Uh, that you would expect maybe in an oil and gas startup? That's interesting. There was so much fun. We had ridiculous amounts of fun. Again, because we're just oil and gas people and, and we know how to have a good time. These guys did not have big funding. They did this all with friends and family. So every new person they brought in, they were delaying them taking a salary for you know another six months. But they were so passionate in what we were building that it just organically grew for so long. So it was, we, we worked hard and we played hard. And how did Not that bad. change as uh, years went on? When did it kind of become a, well, it, it was always fun, but you, you get to a certain size and the, the fun just has to change to something Definitely. else. How long did that take? It, it does. Gosh, I'd have to think back now, but, and I think for different people, we hit different at spells. You know, I, I realize now about myself, I'm better in a smaller company. Certainly, as we began taking on private equity and uh, bringing in a lot of outside different perspectives, it was good. It was needed, but it, it certainly um, toned down some of the fun things of, of prior years. But that's just the way yeah. it goes. Yeah. So, do you remember what number employee you were when in your hire? I want to say I was like fifteen or sixteen, and that wow. included data entry people, which we had quite a number of. So, I mean, there was the five founders, Melinda Lynn, there's, you know, there weren't many of us. Yeah. Wow. That and is, that's, that's, that's amazing. And probably when you were left, you were in the 2000s, I would think. No, no, it was around, I want to say 600, 650. Oh, okay. Like 
It's much yep. bigger. It's really grown a lot since then too, right? I mean, oh, a, lo- right. a lot of different... I-, I thought of them more as sort of a technical focus and, and maybe the oil decks acquisition shifted that a little bit to more sort of finance, accounting, field service focus. Now they're they're everywhere. Yeah, they seem to be. So, you know, we get to hear Alan Gilmer's stories. He's been interviewed a few times. He's not afraid of opinions out on the, <laughs> in social media. What was it like in those early days working with Alan? We had a blast. Uh, he and I started our training program where we would go out and train our customers. We'd have a eight-hour training session, and I would do the beginning part, the first four hours of the, the very basics, because the basics, that, that wasn't fun for him. He wanted to get to the cool stuff and yeah. all the new WYSIWYG. And so he would do the afternoon. So we spent a lot of time on the road together. Um, I don't know if you ever read his uh, blog called Open Choke. And that's where he would, after days on the road, he'd start having an idea, whether it's politics or food or who knows what. And, you know, a few weeks later, it'd show up on on his blog. And it was always a big part of that hearing his thought process and the storytelling and then and see it come out. So, yeah, we had some crazy road times. We uh, we did this thing called Waltz Across Texas. Oh, I, I remember, remember seeing what, that. I saw that. We, yeah, I don't remember what year it was. It was pretty early, like 05, 04, can't remember. But we got up on Monday morning, drove down to San Antonio, did an eight-hour training class, Drove to Corpus, got up, did an eight-hour training class. Drove to Houston, got up, did a training class. Drove to Dallas, got up, did a training class. And then drove to Midland, got up, <laughs> training class, wow. and drove back to Austin. In five days, we covered all of Texas. We were, oh my God. and it was just um, Melinda Faust, Gilmer, and myself. And... We laughed. We. I was gonna say that's not a quiet car either. No. <laughs> you better make sure that air conditioner is working too. Driving down there that much, my goodness. That, oh, it was it was the craziest thing we ever did. I think that's we, really cool. I think yeah. I think Alan did write a post on that at one time because I remember the oh, wall sure. it, it, being written up. It's one of our just I think favorite and painful memories because that was a long week. <laughs> I mean, Ramona, I haven't seen you for for a few years, but I always had really fond memories of you and the, you know, just just drilling info in general, being Austin based, being a little bit different, kind of challenging and disrupting the status quo. So as it relates to Austin, right, it's you've seen a lot of growth in that city as well. Why don't you tell us some of your favorite spots to hit and then tell us a little bit about you and your husband's brewery? Okay. Uh, Yeah. So we've been in Austin now for... 20 years, which I've never lived anywhere in my entire life that long. Uh, so we've seen it grow from a, you know, 600,000 to whatever, a couple million it is now. Wow. You know, we're, we're not part of the old Austin. So we're not like, oh, you know, it's not as weird as it used to be. Austin's still weird. It's uh, certainly had its tech boom and its bust and its boom and its bust with that. Great people. The restaurants have improved. I still miss Houston restaurants. Fortunately, oh, yeah. her fiance lived there, so I get to go back and eat. But I don't know. I, I think Austin's quirky restaurants are still, they're right up there for me. That I really enjoy just 
going there and finding some crazy pancake place and eating some crazy things. I just don't seem to find that in the Houston area. I guess that's true. We definitely have some of the, the more quirky, fun little places. Just And, and they're, they're all over. Certainly some creative, lots of outdoors too. That's the thing about Austin is that, you know, you want to be outside as much as you can. And we do that. So, but if I'm going to pick my favorite place in Austin, then that gets us to our next topic, which yeah. is Adelbert's Brewery. There so, we go. There we go. Yes. So uh, my husband started that. Uh, well, let's see. He left high tech. Uh, he was in semiconductor business and he left that in 2010. So 10 years ago, right about now. Took a year or so to get it up or get money raised and get up and going. But then beginning of 2012, we started making and selling beer. Nice. And it was right at the beginning of the just, it was taking off. We were selling beer all over the state, California, New York, Florida. And then everyone and the dog started to burn. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. And, and then if it's, if it is not beer, it's uh, now craft vodka and all in the hill country and wines. It's uh, so much crap stuff. There's a distillery and a cidery less than a mile from my house. And I don't live in a big town, you know? Yep. That's exactly the, the issue. And people aren't drinking quite as much beer. They are drinking more of the uh, hard liquor and seltzer waters, of course, hard seltzer. Oh yeah. Um, which we're making now too. We're, we're, you know, we're not snobs about it. We'll, we make beer. Uh, yeah, we started doing Belgian style, the big, sexy, tall bombers, uh, all bottle conditioned. And that market did great for a few years. And they were great beers. I, I love getting one of them, but I, you know, they are, <laughs> they're Belgians and they're big. So you can't just sit down in front of their TV and, and drink one. Otherwise you, you won't make the end of the show. No. Yeah. One of our, Best uh, known ones, the one that we won a uh, medal at GABF for the Great American Beer Festival, has an uh, alcohol percentage, I want to say, of like 12%. It's yeah. basically like drinking wine. It's yeah, a- it, it's fabulous beer, though. Well, thank you. I love Great American Beer Festival. Shout out Denver. What are your most popular sellers? Because I feel like, you know, I, I heard something crazy. One of, one of my good friends um, owns a couple restaurants in Chico, California, which as you know, in the brewery world is home to Sierra Nevada. And Sierra Nevada for years and years and years, their Sierra Nevada pale ale was their biggest seller. Well, just a year and a half ago or so, they released their hazy little thing. And that is by far their biggest seller now. So I'm curious, like what trends you're seeing and what, what people are buying? I guess, you know, we switched to cans a few years ago. We still have a few bottles, but more and more into the cans. Uh, IPAs, certainly, is something that was not our style, being Belgian. But Scott makes some, my husband makes some amazing IPAs. And that are nice malt balance. Yeah. And so it's not bite in your face kind of. One of our old brands is still a good seller, Naked Nun. You could have a whole discussion about some of our early names. Uh, the brewery is <laughs> my husband's brother, and he was just bigger than life. So all the names used to have something to do with him. Nice. Um, and then, you know, we he's doing a lot of sours that have gotten real good reviews, uh, a lager. So it just changes. And, and in fact, you know, what I, my favorite changes from season to season and year yeah. to year, I think. So that's the fun part about beer. Yeah, and about owning a brewery because you have access to all those different, <laughs> different styles. Well, you my kids have certainly enjoyed that. Uh, oh, I bet. Growing up in the business, going, you know, they were uh, both in high school, I think junior at my son was in, he was 13 when we started it. Yeah, they've, 
and now my uh, our youngest just graduated from Virginia Tech and is moving to Greenville to start working for GE. So yeah, he worked that beer angle to the max. <laughs> my favorite one year, was, I guess his junior year, we took back a U-Haul because he had some other stuff he needed to take back. And my husband loaded him up with, I want to say, 1,300 cans. I forget how many cases it was. We oh, loaded. Oh, boy. I have a picture of his utility room in his apartment where it was just stacked. And so I'm guessing the fraternities would just basically line up. He's He's got on his resume, you know, beer. And the fraternities would just line up. Here's the guy that we need in our group to get us all the beer for the, for the party. <laughs> might have been, but he was not the fraternity kind of guy. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, but his cousin uh, lived there in Blacksburg. So, uh, and he's uh, the oldest cousin and his works there as an engineer. And uh, he and his friends got to enjoy the benefits of that as well. So, that was a lot of beer that year. That so, how much, when, you, when our new recipe is being put together, what percentage of beers never make the cut? They're never going to get out. He's just like, one taste, that's not going out. That's horrible. Very few, I would say, were like, no, that's just terrible. There are ones we don't take to market necessarily, but we'll sell in the tap room. Yeah. Yeah. And people always like coming and trying new stuff. And if we start hearing somebody's like, man, I really like that. Then they'll start looking at moving that to come up with a can design. So sours, is that a trend? Is that still just a small bubble? Or I say that because I I hated my first sour. I had it up at the New Belgium Brewery up in Fort Collins. And now I've had a couple that I've started to like and I'm just wondering, is that a new, is, is everybody making their own sour now or is that just a isolation? It's thing? still, it's definitely a trend and, and I'll be the first to say we've not, my husband and I, we're not, we're engineers. We're, we're not always good at predicting market trends, but when it comes to making good beer, he, he does that part really, really well. There has definitely been a trend for sours and there's some companies or some breweries that that is their only focus. It's not my favorite style. I've got a couple that I can kind of drink, but, uh, you know, and there's different, there's kettle sours and then there's other sour, you know, if you put them in a barrel and age them, you get different kind of sours. So it's a trend that I have been surprised to stay, but it, it seems to. What else you got, Tim? I think it's covered most of the topics. So tell me what you're at Longquist now. What what's the role of uh, the senior consulting group that you're doing there? Is as you, the other day you were unable to talk because you were going to court. What kind of things are you guys working on? <laughs> well, it was <laughs> hearing actually, but yeah, I guess it was technically a courtroom. Uh, we do a lot. Uh, we're a pretty diverse consulting firm. Do a lot of engineering, design, development, uh, consulting on uh, salt cavern development for both storage and, and brine mining. Hmm. Uh, we get involved on the regulatory side and advisory services on uh, saltwater disposal wells, acid gas injection well, wells, kind of all the strange parts of the business. We do reserves reporting. We do fair market value, a lot of litigation support. So underpayment of royalties, calculating damages, looking at trends, uh, that's where I'll, I'll get involved a lot is, you know, bringing in large amounts of check stub data and analyzing that for trends and the comptroller database and doing comparisons. And then we have crews that go in and do actual drilling workovers and help operate some of these uh, salt caverns uh, across the U.S. Hmm. And we have a few years ago, we started a sand laboratory 
to evaluate frac sand mines or just sand mines. It doesn't have to be frac mines, but just any kind of mining for sand that we're analyzing all the different properties. So, you know, different things that wow. we've gotten into. That's a- that makes it very exciting because you, you're not bored. You're always something different is popping up. Well, I'll tell you, you've definitely seen a broad spectrum of the industry. I mean, going from <laughs> drilling and offshore gas trading now all the way to, you know, brine mining or, you know, so that's just a, it's a fascinating <laughs> travel. That's been so much fun. That's one thing I, I mean, besides the people being the best anywhere oh, yeah. uh, in oil and gas, there's just none like them. The fact that you can be involved in, and learn so many different things and you never have to stop learning. And I love it. So I'm so, still in it after all these years. So you talked about the, the walls across Texas. And so that's kind of the, the hot spots of Texas to go around and, and travel and do various things. So what's the uh, what's kind of that that oil city? You, you know, you got your favorite oil city, but then where is uh, where's kind of the craziest place you've uh, gone on a business trip uh, to support something? Let's see. Favorite oil city, definitely Midland. Always a fun place to go. Love the people. Always have a good time when we go out there. Craziest place I've gone. It wasn't that crazy, but I was very excited. I got to go to Buenos Aires a couple times with Drilling Info. Nice. Cool. Yeah. Talking to some companies down there. So that was a very exciting opportunity. Was all the presentation in English or did you have like a Spanish translator or something? No, we did it all in English and uh, we're showing them some of our analytics and studies that we had done on uh, different shale plays that they were interested in. So, uh, but boy, learning to go out, not eating until 10 o'clock at night and having oh, a yeah. huge steak and wine and then have to get up and be back at a meeting at 9 a.m. I was like, yeah, I, I'll tell you, when you run across in a different country and you're not tuned in, your, your cycle, your meal yeah. eating and sleep cycle is not in sync. I remember going down to uh, Villaramosa, Mexico and you know, about 1130, I'm starting to think about, oh, I'm hungry. We're in the middle of the meeting and we hit noon. Everyone's still going. We hit one o'clock. We're still going. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, okay, I guess (laughs) we're not having lunch. We're not having lunch. And we get all the way to two o'clock. And it was was fascinating to me. At two o'clock, everybody's notebooks just instantly slam shut. And okay, now it's go time. time. We're out. So, and, you know, I just didn't realize you basically, at least that part of Mexico, you you go on siesta between two and four thirty, yeah. and everybody goes and has a big lunch, and then they come back at four thirty and work until six or seven. Which you know, I was completely unprepared for that. And <laughs> Argentina has a very similar. If you're, you know, you're thinking about at, at ten o'clock at night, I'm considering. Well, I'll just have a light snack and go to bed, and then suddenly the big meal comes out. It's just you know, <laughs> what the hell. Gosh, fast, but you know, I, that's on my list of places to go is Argentina. I hear such great things about it, but I've never been. Down. It was wonderful. That was a great, neat town, neat, neat city. So, Ramona, I wanted to thank you so much for your time today. This was really enjoyable for me. Your perspective is super valuable, and uh, look forward to seeing you either at your brewery or at a trade show if they come back. Well, thanks, guys. This has been a lot of fun. It's always great to tell the the fun stories of the business. Thanks a lot, Ramona. And I guess maybe we should do the podcast from Edelberts at some point. Uh, yeah, that's the next. Yes, yeah, part two, twenty twenty one. Sounds good. When this, when this thing opens up, we'll go down there and do it from there. I love it. Sounds great, guys. See ya. Bye now.